we might come up with a house plan like this and we will say, well, you know, we've got these rooms, we'll do these various things in this room and we get all excited about it. Well, God's done the same with his house of prayer for all nations. He's given us a plan and he's given us the details of what he's going to do with this. And so our talk is going to be based on Brother Sully's book and we're going to look closely at what Brother Sully says. So at the end, plenty of questions. I don't mind questions, but don't forget that we're not going to get to everything that you might have questions on initially. We hope to sort of touch all points as we move through this. So to start with, this is what has been written by Brother Roberts about Brother Sully. Now, now Brother Sully was, was a, a very successful architect, had his own business, and Brother Ro Roberts came to him with a set of drawings and uh, said, look, a lot of brethren are trying to work through this prophecy of Ezekiel's temple. He had the brother Roberts had various drawings that brethren had sketched, and he put it on the table and he gave it to Brother Sully and he said to Brother Sully, "Can you uh, give us some assistance with this?" And Brother Sully said, "No, look, I'm not really qualified to do that. I'm not the right person." And Brother uh, Roberts pressed him, and then with the help of some brethren and some Hebrew experts. Brother Sully then became engaged in seven years of intense study. So Brother Robert says this, Brother Sully's studies have led to a totally different view of the fabric seen envisioned by Ezekiel from that that has been previously entertained, different in magnitude and different in plan. So no one had ever presented this idea before. The size is in harmony, the size of the temple is in harmony with the requirements of the place to be used as the worshipping rally point of all mankind, which is not the case with previously published plans, and the plan is adapted to the size as no other form could be. Such as it is, it is not a guess. So it's important to remember that Brother Sully has not just taken a guess about, oh, I think it's going to have a circle in the middle, I think it's going to be a square, uh, and it's going to have two corner towers. It's not a guess, it's not a theory, it's the outcome of a divine specification, which we've got in his Ezekiel chapters 40 through to chapters 48, and construed with filial, which means loving and scrupulous subservancy, and with the most painstaking and prolonged application. So Brother Sully puts at least seven years into this, and, and he would draw concepts, throw that away, draw another concept, go to the Hebrew experts, and after seven years, he came up with the concept. <coughs> So it's not something that was done overnight. And Brother Sully's work really is not respected today in many quarters, but it is a, a monumental work and it gives us a great vision of the kingdom and the temple, a great insight. So we ask the question, well, why study this? It seems very technical. What would be the reason for studying the temple? Well, because it's a vision of the kingdom. That's one of the reasons for studying this. To Ezekiel, it was real. Now, either we're told that he saw a vision, and we're told in the scriptures that without a vision, the people perish or they're made naked. So we need a vision of the kingdom, and this is an excellent vision of the kingdom. It takes us right into the kingdom and to the worship in the kingdom age, and we're going to be there in the temple. So it really, we, make, we should make it a reality in our lives because we hope to be there in the future in the kingdom age. Now, Ezekiel was told in verse 4, and the man, that there's a man that had the, the measuring reed and the linen flax in his hand, the line of flax in his hand, he said unto me in verse 4, Son of man, behold with thine eyes and hear with thine ears and set thine heart upon all that I shall show thee. So Ezekiel was to set his heart upon it. It wasn't just some academic measurements a cubit here and a cubit there it's to do with our the inner man our moral the moral sphere of our life and that's repeated again throughout the book set your heart on it as daniel was told to set his heart on the word of god and we we are to set our heart on the whole of scripture but particularly on the this book now set our hearts upon the book of ezekiel on the prophecy because it's all about the kingdom it's study I haven't seen this before. 
highlights our failings before God that we might measure ourselves up to Christ. And we read that, and we'll go to this passage in a minute, in Ezekiel chapter 43 and verse 10. But it highlights, it, it humbles us. A study of this great and magnificent temple is designed to humble mankind. And it helps us to seek first the kingdom of God and to inquire of that one thing that we should all desire. That's what the psalmist says. He says, there is, I can't see my screen now. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of Yahweh and to inquire in his temple. And that Psalm 27 was written by the psalmist. So he says, this is the one thing that I really desire, to dwell in the temple, to walk in the courts, to ascend up into the mountain of the Lord, as he says in other psalms, and to behold the beauty of Yahweh and to inquire in his temple, the one thing that he desires. And we're going to find, as we start to move through this study, that the references to the temple are not limited to chapters 40 through to chapter 48 of Ezekiel, but they're right throughout the whole of scriptures. The temple is mentioned right throughout, particularly in the Old Testament scriptures. And so the Apostle Paul could say, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. So Paul's not making a specific, specific reference to the temple, but he's saying, look, there is one thing in his life that he wants to do. He wants to reach to the things that are forward, to the things of the kingdom, as David did, seeking for the temple and the things of the kingdom. When the Lord Jesus Christ said to the rich young ruler, then Jesus beholding him, loved him and said, one thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast and give it to the poor and thou shalt have treasure in heaven and come take up thy cross and follow me. And so we need to pick up that, that cross as it were and that one thing and make our, set our hearts upon this temple, the moral lessons of the temple, the one thing that we desire. Now, here's this passage in chapter 43. Let's just go across to chapter 43. Ezekiel's been shown through parts of the temple, and we read in verse 10, Thou, son of man, a reference to Ezekiel as a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, show the house to the house of Israel, to the national house of Israel, and to the spiritual house of Israel, where the spiritual house of Israel that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the pattern. Now notice those words, measure the pattern, stretch out a line it means, and the pattern means to sum the matter. To sum the matter is to measure on divine principles. But what does it mean when it says that they might be ashamed? Well, the word ashamed it's a Hebrew word and really means humiliation or wounding of the pride. Israel will be humiliated when they see the temple, when they see the majesty and the glory of the temple. But the word has got the additional idea of being ashamed, not so much through God's punishment, but rather through God's goodness. The principles taught in the temple building are designed to make us realise our inadequacy in the face of God's goodness. The temple is designed to teach us the great power and wonder of God, how beautiful things are that he does, how wonderful they are, and to make us ashamed of our own failings and weaknesses and to humble us so that the temple carries this very powerful moral lesson that is to humble. Israel is to be humbled and it will humble the nations. When the nations come up to worship at the temple, they will just be absolutely amazed at the glory of the temple. So wonderful will the building be, and so wonderful will the spiritual lessons be that are imparted through every aspect of the temple, that it will be a wonderful <laughs> and a humiliating, a humbling aspect. So that's a great moral principle. And Ezekiel was told that he was to do this to the house of Israel. In verse 11, he says, and if they be ashamed, verse 11, if they be ashamed of all that they have done, show them the form of the house 
The word show, as you can see on the screen, means to perceive, understand the form of the house. The word form means all the specific detailed designs of the house, the fashion of the house, the arrangement of the house, the goings out, the place of the 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 going out of the porchways and the comings in, the entrance gates where they come in. They all carry spiritual lessons and they'll be amazing to everybody who sees them. To the forms once again, to the ordinances, to the statutes and the prescriptions in relation to the, the sacrifices and the principles that will be taught there in that house and to the laws, as it says, or the, yes, to the laws, which is the word precept or instruction. It's the word Torah or doctrine. The doctrines that will be taught when they come to see the principles of the house and when we understand what those they're talking about. Then it says in verse 12, this is the law of the house upon the top of the mountain. The whole limit thereof roundabout shall be most holy because this is the law of the house. So <clears throat> the spirit is saying to Ezekiel that the, the central teaching, the most central aspect of this house is the altar in the center. It's the very law is the very central doctrine of the house, which is the principle of sacrifice. Now, we live in a world today where people, it's the me society, where the world says, wants everything to do for themselves. They don't sacrifice for anybody. They, do, they, they want to do everything for themselves. But in the kingdom, the focus will be in all the kingdom, all the people who go up to the temple, when they look into the center of the temple, wherever they look, they will see the altar and they will see the sacrifice, and that will focus their attention then on the great sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. There will be sacrifices in the temple. It's a central part of the temple. Yes, the, it, the, the offering, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ is the one and only sacrifice for all of mankind, for their sins and for the redemption, but all of these sacrifices will point back to that great sacrifice that Christ made because the world will not be conscious of sin as, as we understand it, or death or war. They'll be living in a time of peace and no bloodshed. So these sacrifices will be an important part for the nations to comprehend what this great king did. He gave his life. He sacrificed his life for the as a saviour of the world. And, of course, that's a great principle for us in the ecclesia. Sacrifice should be the central aspect of our ecclesial life giving of ourselves for our brethren. It says it's on the top of the mountain. And this is a, a, a phrase that appears from time, all the times throughout the, uh, the scriptures referring to the temple. For example, Psalm 24, who shall ascend into the hill of Yahweh? The word hill is the word her or mountain. Who shall ascend into the mountain of Yahweh? He who has got a pure heart and clean hands. A reference in that Psalm 24 to the temple. So right throughout the scriptures, this moral principle is taught. The temple is going to be a place of worship for all nations and Yahweh's great power will be revealed there. <laughs> so just to give us a, a very brief overview so we'll know what we're talking about and we'll come back to this slide from time to time. If we look at a cross section of the temple, the altar is in the very centre and the mountain. You can see that there, point number five. That will be then covered with a great cloud as Israel were guided by a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. So the temple will be covered with this cloud that will be a, a covering of cloud for shade during the day and a, a cloud of light and fire during the night to provide light, a wonderful awe-inspiring sight. So that's referred to as the tent or the tabernacle uh, as, or the most holy place. And then you come down to the point number three, to the inner court and the gate buildings in the holy place and the temple, as you can see, the inner circular building. And we'll talk about the circular building. We've got what I believe to be very reasonable proof, very good proof that the building in the centre is a circular building. And it's referred to as the temple. We, we generally refer to the whole building as a temple, but in the prophecy, the temple, the term temple refers to this specific part. And then the, the sanctuary or the house of prayer for all people, the overall building 
and then you've got the outer court uh, and its gate buildings where everybody who comes up will enter in first into the outer court and then goes through into the separate place and into the first part of the temple. And they will see the altar. They'll see the sacrifices on the altar. So these are the five main structures of the temple. This is um, Brother Sully's uh, architectural concept of that inner temple. And you can see looking through the opening there of that temple, you can make out the, the mountain in the distance in which a river will come down from the side. The water will bubble up, we are told in the prophecy, underneath the altar. It will be used to cleanse the altar after the sacrifices. The water will then rush down the mountainside and break into two streams and come out under the threshold on the north and the south of the temple. So people will have to go through that river in typical baptism to enter into that temple. But this is the inner, inner temple building. And you'll notice there you've got how small the people are walking up the steps to go into the inner temple. You've got the, the cherubic figures of the face of the lion and the face of the man. The Lord Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the son of man, representative of the son of God there as they approach into this temple, teaching that great moral lesson about the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the king of the world. So that, that it will be a magnificent temple that, that will be built. Now, David said to Solomon that his temple, he said, Solomon, my son is young and tender, and the house that is to be builded for Yahweh must be exceedingly or exceeding magnifical of fame and of glory throughout all countries, a magnificent temple in which it was built for Israel, for Israel to worship, but for all countries to glory in when they came, as the queen came from the south and she saw the magnificence of Solomon's temple. temple. Now I'm going to just project into this drawing the size of Solomon's temple for you, which was a magnificent building, to give you some idea of the scale of the differences between the two buildings. Because this temple we're looking at on the screen, which is Brother Sully's concept, which we believe to be basically correct, and I know there are brethren who question this, but we believe it to, I believe it to be basically correct. Some of the concepts may not be exactly as it will be. We'll only find out in the kingdom. But it will be a magnificent temple. It will be a large temple that will be there for all nations to come up and worship. So it must be a large temple if nations are going to come up and to worship and to see Yahweh, the great God of Israel, manifest in the Son, his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we go. And you might just miss it. There's Solomon's temple. <laughs> Solomon's temple in scale compared to the temple that will be constructed in the future age. It was a magnificent temple, but nothing to be compared with the temple that will show forth Yahweh's glory and teach all these spiritual lessons in the age to come. So what we're going to do now, if, if Yahweh is going to build a temple and he's the great architect, we're just going to have a look. So it's going to be a slight diversion, but we're going to have a look at what he has created, the Milky Way from the earth. It's a part of his divine creation. Just to put things in perspective a little bit, We've got a few photos here from the Hubble telescope. Some facts from the scientists about light years. That's looking out through the Hubble telescope, uh, 17,300 light years away. And uh, that was taken in the year 2002 out into the universe that we really know nothing about. And yet the great creator who's the, the, the architect of this temple is the creator and of all of this that we see on the screen. We, it's just beyond our comprehension. So I'm going to show you a, a very specific photo taken from the Voyager 1 satellite, which was um, shot into space, I think, in 1977. So it was um, shot out from America in 1977. And Voyager uh, 1 was launched in September. And Sagan, who was the chief scientist, he pushed for this Voyager satellite 
to take a photo of the Earth when its vantage point reached the edge of our solar system. I'll just see if I can get rid of this down the bottom here. Up there. That was in 1977 when it was shot off Cape Canaveral. In 1990, having completed its primary mission, NASA commanded the spacecraft to turn around to photograph the planets of the solar system. And so between February 1990 and June 1990, one image the Voyager returned was of planet Earth, and it showed up as a pale blue dot in its grainy photo. Now, you're going to have to look very hard because I'm going to show you planet Earth. Can you see it there? There's planet Earth. That's where we are. We're sitting on that little speck, that grain of dust in the cosmic atmosphere, and it's taken by that Voyager satellite. So Yahweh, the great creator, is just, it's incomprehensible what he knows. But this, this scientist goes on to talk about this little blue dot. He says, look, you're here now, Earth from Voyager 1. And he says, look again at that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. Honoured everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mama and mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena, he says. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in the glory and triumph they could become momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. How frequent their misunderstandings, how eager they are to kill one another, how fervent their hatreds. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe. Now, this is Sagan speaking. It's not... Christadelphians, we know we do have a privileged position. He says these are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely planet, is a lonely speck in the great un enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. Well, there is. We know that Christ is coming. The earth is the only world known so far to harbour life. There is nowhere else, at least in the near future, to which our species could migrate. Visit, yes. Settle, not yet. Like it or not, for the moment, the Earth is where we make our stand. And so that pale blue dot, it says, he says it has been said that astronomy is a humbling and a character-building experience. Mm. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me. It underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we ever knew. Actually, quite moving words by Carl Sagan, and it's quite moving to see that we do live on that little planet suspended out there in the middle of space. But we know that Yahweh has said that the heavens, even the heavens are his, but the earth hath he given to the children of men. He's a great architect, a great designer. And so any temple he designs and gives us the specifications for is not going to be some little weekend tin house. It's going to be a magnificent temple, as was Solomon's temple. But this temple that he's going to construct <laughs> is going to be a temple for all that to worship 
and to teach the great lessons, the great moral lessons about his son, about him, and about the wonders of his great power. And now I've got a little video for you, and some of you may have seen this or may not have seen it. Uh, yes, it's got a bit of musical background. It, it takes a couple of minutes, so just bear with it. It's it's a, a walk through the temple, and uh, not because it's been done with uh, CAD, not all aspects are there. So here we are now. We're approaching the temple. We're coming up to the entrance steps, seven steps up into the entrance porch. You can see the arches, the, they, and we understand that they'll be all covered with a, a mass of beautiful vines, and there will be a transparent covering over the top of this to keep the rain out. As we come up the stairs into the porch, in which we're given all the specific details which match this drawing, on our left, we pass three chambers, which we believe are lifts powered by flowing water, which then take the, the passengers of the lifts up to the floors above. There's no stairways in it, so we understand that they are lifts, and we'll talk more about that later. As we come out into the inner court, that's not water we're coming onto, that's tessellated paving. And just this uh, person who's put this together, it has the, but it's not water, it's tessellated paving or like beautiful tiles. And as we turn around now and we look down this inner court, this inner court is equivalent to a, a, a 12 lane freeway. So just imagine one of your Sydney freeways or one of our Brisbane freeways, 12 lanes wide. That's how wide this, this outer court is. And we look down and we see the, the towers at the end, massive towers, which are constructed also to take the thrust that the, the arches would create. We're going to talk about the arches. There's been some brethren who have questioned the arches were adopted by Brother Sully. They suggest from... Uh, the Gothics, oh, that's not true. We believe that we've got scriptural and we've got archaeological evidence that the arches are a Jewish concept and that they will be part of the temple. Brother Sully hasn't, so he hasn't copied this from some cathedral as has been suggested. He's based his concepts on what the teachings of the scriptures are and what the Hebrew words say in the book of Ezekiel. So as we move up this, uh, this outer court now, on the left, they've got more buildings on the left-hand side, which will be rooms for, for judgment. There'll be, uh, be areas for bringing sacrifices in, for washing the sacrifices. There'll be rooms for education. And as you cross through from that inner court building to the temple, uh, through the separate place, you've then got the chambers of singers, the beautiful area where the singers will not will sing with immortal voices and mortal voices the praise of our Heavenly Father and to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the temple is to be a place of worship in the kingdom age for all nations. The scriptures tell us that. So worship in the present age, what do we do? We, we meet to remember God's saving work in Christ. We congregate together as large or small ecclesias. We sing praises. We offer communal and individual prayers of thankfulness. We meditate on God's ways. We listen to Bible expositions designed to encourage us in godly ways. We try to grow in the development of God's character. We may even meet in small cottage meetings or in large congregations in halls. And we meet at fraternal gatherings. All of these things we do. But in the kingdom age, there's going to be much the same sort of pattern. There's going to be meetings to remember God's saving work in Christ. And people living in the dispersed countries throughout the world will be taught in their own countries. There will be meeting places. They'll be taught about Christ and God's ways. They'll sing praises. They'll offer communal and individual prayers of thankfulness. They'll meditate on God's ways. They'll listen to Bible expositions. And I believe the Bible will still be used. And the faithful men of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all those worthies of old will still be taught about in the kingdom age to encourage the mortal population in godly ways. 
there will be encouragement to grow in the development of God's character. And people may meet in small cottage meetings or in large congregations in halls. And based on Israel's history, the people will go up to the temple to worship and they'll attend at the temple for feasts because we're told that in the scriptures, in Zechariah and in, in the book of Ezekiel, that there will be feast days, there will be crowds of people from all nations. And the Lord Jesus Christ makes reference to the house of prayer for all nations of the world. So it will be a place of worship. So what do the scriptures say about this? Well, there's lots of passages, but I'll just put up one or two for us, and that a couple that we perhaps are familiar with. For example, Isaiah 2. We know this passage very well, but we probably haven't tweaked to the words that it uses all the time. It says, And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of Yahweh's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. See this language here, mountains? That the that mountain in the centre of the temple, it's all it's referred to in, in many many prophecies, and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations. So it's going to be a, a house of prayer for all nations to flow unto those that are left after the great time of trouble, such as never was. And many people shall go and say, "Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, and He will teach us of His ways, and we will walk in His paths." For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. And another passage from Zechariah 14, verse 6, which we know quite well also. And it shall come to pass that every nation that is left, everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king Yahweh of armies, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whosoever will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the king, Yahweh of armies, even upon them shall be no rain. And we're familiar with that passage, but it's, it's telling us that it's all the families of the earth. This is not a small temple. This is a large temple to accommodate all these people that will come up to worship and the very central aspect that they're coming up to worship as you can see in that illustration there, is to focus onto the centre, the great sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, the great principle of sacrifice in our daily lives, that we're to sacrifice our desires, the things we want to do for the sake of God and for the sake of others, which, that which the Lord Jesus Christ did so perfectly and which we constantly fail. It will be the law of the house, the great principle in the kingdom of God, And so I've already mentioned this, that the Lord Jesus Christ set his seal upon a house large enough for all nations. Isaiah 56 says, even them, and it's talking, it talks about the eunuchs, those that are prepared to separate themselves for Christ's sake, even them will I bring to my, there's that word again, to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer their bird offerings and their sacrifices shall be accepted upon mine altar, for mine house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. All in harmony with the prophecy in Ezekiel chapters 43 to 44, Isaiah 66, and it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith Yahweh, all flesh. And so the Lord Jesus Christ endorses those passages of Scripture. And he says, let's try and get my mouse down here. And he said unto them, it is written, it is written, and he's referring to Isaiah and all the other passages of Scripture that refer to the temple. It is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. So the temple is not some spiritual house alone. Yes, it, there is a spiritual house, but there is a literal house. And it's a literal house that Ezekiel is referring to and which we will visit and the nations of the world will visit. And we will be there with the Lord Jesus Christ. And he endorses that prophecy. Now, just coming back to Ezekiel chapter 40 now. Just a little bit of a, a discussion about 
the size of the temple. We read this in verse 2. And the visions of God brought he me into the land of Israel and set me upon a very high mountain by which was as the frame of a city on the south. So Ezekiel in his vision sees this temple, this great building. It's not, it's not some small city that, that would have, or small Jewish town. It's referred to as the frame of a city. He sees it. So it's, and it's one building. So big it is. It's so big that it's referred to as the frame of a city. And of course, there are other passages. I'll just move this out of the way if I can. He set me down upon a very high mountain, as the revised version says whereon were, as it were, the frame of the city. Ezekiel was taken into the future. Now, whether it was by a vision or like in the transfiguration, as I believe, he was actually projected into the future, but it does say he, he was taken in a vision. But he saw this frame of a city. Now, that's in harmony with what the psalmist says in Psalm 48. Great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. And there's that word mountain again, in the mountain of his holiness. Beautiful for situation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion, which is the, the mountain on which the altar will be constructed. On the sides of the north, the city of the great king. So what the psalmist speaks about in Psalm 48, this city is the city that, that Ezekiel now sees, the city to the south in this great vision of the temple. We're told in the future age that when the people come up to the temple to worship, in this passage in chapter 46 and verse 9, but when the people of the land shall come before Yahweh in the solemn feasts, he that entereth by the way of the north gate shall go out by the way of the south gate, and he that entereth by the way of the south gate shall go forth by the way of the north gate. He shall not return by the way of the gate whereby he came in, but shall go forth over against it. So you can see by these arrows, someone comes from the north, goes through the river in typical baptism, into the outer court, must go down the, the right down the eastern or the western side, and then along the southern side and out again. And those that visit from the south have to come the other way, and they have to go right through the temple. They have to walk right about Zion, go around all round about her and tell her towers. It will be a wonderful experience for the people of the world. And that's why the gates, and you get some people who draw a small temple and the concept of a small temple, the gates drawings, and we'll look at the gates when we look at the study on the porches, have to be such a size that you've got the people from all nations. People will be going in and coming out, so there'll be no confusion. If you've ever been to a very large, in a very large crowd, like we have in China, and I think Bruce and Gar were there with, I don't know whether they were with us in China. Yes, they were. No, they were with us in Russia. But in China, there were just, the, the city was teeming with people. And so it's going to be like that in the temple. And provision for movements of large masses of people, it will be, has been designed for and allowed for in this temple. I just want to have a little bit of a talk now about this measuring read. We've only got about, 10 or 15 minutes to go, but we'll just start to open the door a little bit on the measurements of the temple. So just coming now back to chapter 40, this time to verse 3. And we read, And he brought me thither, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of brass. Now that in itself, this man that had the appearance of brass, is a study all on its own. I'm not going to deal with that tonight. But he had with with a line of flax in his hand and a measuring reed, and he stood in the gate. So this man's standing in one of these gates you can see here, and he's got a line of flax and a measuring reed in his hand. So there's a picture of the man, and he's got this cord, this line of flax. Now, this is not... It's The line of flax is a very, very interesting symbol 
but it's not ever used. Now, we must get this straight. The line of flax is not used for measuring anywhere in the temple. The reed is used for measuring in the temple. The line of flax is a type of Christ and the saints in the age to come. It's the saints in the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only mentioned twice in the temple vision, and two different words are used, the word pathal and the word kav. In fact, the word kav is used in uh, Psalm 19, where it says their line is gone throughout, gone out into all the earth. And it's, it's, it's talking about the teaching and the, the instruction of the saints in the kingdom age. That's the line in the hand of the man standing at the gate. It's not a measuring line. We must remember that it, the rod is the only instrument that is used for measuring in the temple. So we, we say this is not a comment on two different types of measuring devices, but nowhere in this prophecy is a line of flax used to measure. The measuring instrument is a reed. Now have a look in chapter 42, verse 15. Chapter 42, verse 15. Now, when he had made an end of measuring the inner house, he brought me forth toward the gate whose prospect is toward the east and measured it round about. He measured the east side with the measuring reed. Now, I noticed that um, Phil read from a different translation. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But in the authorised version, the word is measuring reed. I think he read measuring rod, but it is, a, it is a rod, a measuring reed, 500 reeds. This is absolutely important because now we're dealing with the size of the temple. 500 reeds with the measuring reed roundabout. He measured the north side, and the scriptures are really being emphatic, emphatic about this, 500 reeds with the measuring reed roundabout. He measured the south side, 500 reeds with the measuring reed. He turned about to the west side and measured 500 reeds with the measuring reed. Of course, the question is, well, how big is the reed? Well, we'll come to that in a moment. And he measured it by the four sides. It had a wall roundabout. And notice that term, a wall roundabout, 500 reeds long and 500 broad to make a separation between the sanctuary and the profane place, which means the place outside, which is a profane place, outside the temple. So the measuring instrument is a reed, and uh, we believe that wood is a wooden reed, or it's a, the word is quaina, and, and that's the word that Phil read. It was a rod, a measuring rod, and wood is the best material for accurate measurements, and the line of flax would be entirely unsuitable. You can stretch the flax, it can shrink, and you're just not going to get accurate measurements. So wood is the instrument. So Ezekiel saw the angel with a measuring reed or rod in his hand standing ready to measure the temple. Now, this reed is six cubits long. We need to go back to Ezekiel chapter 40. Ezekiel chapter 40. Now, there is a spiritual lesson in this. We probably won't get to it tonight. But chapter 40 and verse 5, we read, And behold, a wall. Now, there's that same wall that we read of in chapter 42. A wall on the outside of the house round about, and, the man's, and in the man's hand a measuring reed of six cubits long, by the cubit and a handbreadth. So he measured the breadth of the building, one reed, and the height, one reed. Now, I'll explain what it means when it says the breadth of the building, one reed, and so forth a little bit later. But firstly, we're establishing that a reed or the rod in his hand is six cubits long. Now, a cubit, it tells us what, what the, in how to measure the cubit. It's tells us, which is a cubit and a hand breadth long. Now, when we come to what a cubit is, the Companion Bible gives the hand breadth as uh, 91 millimetres. But what's a cubit? Well, the word cubit means mother of the arm or the forearm. So from your fingertip to your elbow, 
is, is your forearm. That's what the word cubit means. And there are several cubits used in the Bible. There's the common cubit in Deuteronomy chapter 3, which is approximately 533 millimetres, or there's the royal cubit or the legal cubit, and I'll just get rid of this. Oops. Get rid of this out of the way. The legal cubit or the cubit of the sanctuary is 624 millimetres. Now, for if you're still old school, 600 millimetres is approximately 24 inches. It's the cubit of a, man, uh, a cubit of a man plus a hand breadth. So it's from your fingertip to your elbow plus your four fingers. Now, that's the legal cubit or the royal cubit that's used to measure the temple. Now, the reed is six of those. Six of those makes one reed. And we've got 500 reeds along the side of the temple. Now, if someone wants to argue about the size of the temple, they might say, oh, well, you know, the cubit is 620 millimetres or 600 millimetres. It doesn't matter much if we're out a few millimetres. It is still a very, very big temple. It's not some small temple the size of Solomon's temple. There's no way that we can accept what a small temple if we understand if we if we accept what the scriptures say we are superimposing on the, the the scriptures something that's not there if we say it's a small temple so let's just have a closer look at this a reed equals six great cubits we're told that in chapter 40 and verse 5 in the man's hand a measuring reed of six cubit long by the cubit and a handbreadth very clear so the great cubit, 624 millimetres, take a few, give or take a few. So a reed is 3.7 metres long, or if you like, 12 feet long. The outer wall of the sanctuary we looked at in Ezekiel chapter 42 was 500 reeds. So 500 times 3.744 is 1.872 kilometres along one side, or if you want in miles, about 1.1 miles. So no matter whatever way you look at this, if you look at the scriptures, you understand what the scriptures are saying, we've got a temple at least 1.8 kilometres approximately square, a very big building, the frame of a city. This is no small temple. Our Bibles, our, and I say our Bibles, you know, you're going to get some, and I'll come to the translations in, well, we're just about out of time, so I'm not going to get time for that tonight. But I'm going to show you how other translations have perverted the teaching of Scripture. This is going to be really critical. I'm going to do this in the next study to show you how people come up with a small temple because what they've done, they've fiddled with the Scriptures and they've come up with something that the Scriptures are not saying doesn't fit in with the doctrine of what the scriptures are talking, and they come up with a small temple. And so David, by the Spirit, could say, walk round about her. Mark well her bulwarks. Consider her palaces. Number her towers. And so I walk around that temple, 1.8 kilometres by four is about 7.4 kilometres or 4.5 miles, a long walk a long walk and he measured this we're told around the wall of the house which runs around the outside of the house we need to get these things clear i just want to explain to you what the wall of the house is and then we'll finish on this note god willing then next fortnight we're going to come back and we're going to i'm going to put the temple for you on sydney's harbour so you can see how big it is I'm going to explain to you how people have perverted the, the, the temple size and why it's critical. And we've already explained to you it's, it's important that we understand that it's a large temple and we'll carry on with the spiritual lessons that are conveyed therein. Let's just have a look at this wall of the house. You see, in this end of verse 5 of chapter 40, it says he, he's measured with a cubit, so he measured the breadth of the building one reed and the height one read. Now, a reed is only six cubits. Now, 
how could well the word breadth and there i've got it on the screen so we measured it the word breadth uh, the breadth of the building it doesn't mean it's the temple the word is a hebrew word which means structure he measured the structure just on the outside which was a temple wall and if you look at my drawing there which is the entrance porch you can see a little red arrow there there that, that just did a little bit of a circuit for you there's the width of the wall one reed or 12 foot wide six cubits wide now this next drawing which i'll draw in for you there's the man standing there with the reed in his hand it's one reed high six cubits high and six cubits wide so he measured the wall of the house but that wall of the house is 500 reeds or 1.8 kilometers all the way around the temple so there it is he measured the east side with the measuring reed 500 reeds the north side the south side the west side and he measured by its four sides it had a wall around about 500 reeds long and 500 broad to make a separation between the sanctuary and the profane place and we're going to finish it there tonight brothers and sisters but we just started to open up the door and to introduce to you to some of the spiritual lessons but firstly we're just showing you this magnificent temple solomon's temple was going to be exceedingly magnificent. this temple is going to be beyond description and that what we've got chapters 40 to 48 is a wonderful explanation with all those spiritual lessons of this house of prayer and we're going to be there we're going to be serving in that temple on rotational duties i believe as the the priests after the order of melchizedek the sons of zadok serving in that temple so we're going to be there so it's wonderful for us to be projected into the future and to see this vision of the kingdom so thank you brother phil for getting this first study and allowing us to share that with you for tonight thank you